Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 108, released on March 6th, 2019. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the podcast on your app of choice today, including iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud, and don't miss the new episodes coming out at least weekly. Today we are going to talk about the future of esports, about the tough times for Revolut, about the old tech that is still working around us in more places than you expect, about blockchain phones, for God's sake, and much more. We also have a pre-recorded interview with Goran Wackstrom, uh, the founder and CEO of ITCA, which was a sponsor and participant of our Mobile Sunday event in Barcelona. If you were there, I hope you enjoyed it. Unfortunately, neither I nor my co-host today, Natalie Novik, have been able to join. So, Natalie, how is it going for you? It's going great. Good to talk with you, Andre. It's getting quite cold here again in Edinburgh, but looking forward to spring. Yeah, same here in Amsterdam. It's quite windy outside, so I prefer to stay in at my local ecosystem that is around my sofa and uh, just record the podcast rather than talking to people in the real life. <laughs> so how was the past week anyway, and what was the biggest deal this time? So last week, the biggest deal went to France, where Miracle raised 70 million US dollars in a new funding round. If you don't know, Miracle is a B2B company that manages marketplaces for e-commerce firms, basically anything that's not Amazon or Alibaba. The deal was led by Bain Capital and a number of subsequent partners. Last year, Miracle added 60 new customers and launched 37 marketplaces, essentially doubling their scope from 2017. So really big growth from them. The funding is going to be used to do more of the same, continue to grow, continue to build. And they're based about 30% of their market is in France, 40% in the US, and the remainder around the world. Oh, this is interesting. And it's, again, a company raising a pretty big funding round uh, coming from Europe that I have never heard of before. I just wonder how it happens and what uh, what do we need to do to kind of surface these uh, companies uh, like in advance so that both ourselves and the readers, the audience kind of hear about them more? Because I think they should be known inside France, inside the local ecosystem, but not necessarily across Europe. You know, and I think part of it stems from you have very prominent B2B companies that don't really have a lot of consumer focus. So you don't necessarily get a lot of consumer attention or interest from individuals. So they're very well known within their own kind of vertical or scope, but maybe not known quite as well to the wider public. So I, I think that that might be one aspect that, that leads to this outcome. Agreed. So speaking of uh, interest uh, from different sides, if we move to the stories and interviews of the week, there was one company that got way more interest uh, from the media than they would probably want to. The company is Revolut. Again, and uh, two weeks ago in this podcast, you, Natalie, said that Revolut uh, had had a really tough February. But it turns out we had no idea that it would get much tougher towards the end of the month. So just last week, 
three media reports surfaced almost simultaneously. I'm just wondering if there is a conspiracy to this, each delivering a significant blow to the banking startup. So uh, story number one, and I'm not sure it was actually first uh, in terms of chronology, but I just like it most. And I think this is the more uh, important one of the three. It's about uh, culture. It's about working culture. Uh, Wired in the UK published a pretty damning account uh, of the working culture at Revolut, uh, where according to several former employees, uh, the company basically asked uh, job candidates to do quite a bit of work for free. Uh, in Spain, for example, an applicant for the business development manager role had been given a task to recruit at least 200 clients for the Challenger Bank in a week. And just to clarify here, succeeding in this didn't actually mean that uh, you'd uh, get the job. It was just one of the steps in the interviewing process. And then the same task was given to the applicants uh, who wanted to become uh, Revolut's uh, PR and community manager in Greece. So I kind of can understand at least why a business development manager would have to do this sort of thing. But for a PR and community person, this is not something you would be expected to do in your day-to-day uh, -day job. So why uh, why would you even give this task? Not even saying that this is unethical and you should not ask people to work for free for this much. It's not like a test task. It's much more than that. Also, it uh, turns out, however, that uh, those who actually managed to land a job at Revolut were in for more undue pressure, even more than before. So the story on uh, Wired paints a picture of country managers and uh, other employees uh, being constantly overworked and mistreated. I don't want to paraphrase the entire article here, so I will just uh, quote a part of a message on Revolut's uh, Slack workspace uh, sent by its CEO, Nikolai Staronsky. Uh, the quote begins... I noticed uh, that several product owners slash team leaders are significantly below targets and still do not work on weekends to catch up. There is a simple rule in place. Product owners and team members with performance rating, quote, significantly below expectations, unquote, will be fired without any negotiations after the review. The quote ends. So this is certainly the type of work culture I would not want to be part of. But at the same time, I have to say I do know quite a few people for whom probably it wouldn't be a problem at all. Uh, Natalie, what do you think? What's your take? You're an American. You should be more like a work pressing person. Yeah, well, and for this, it really brings up a lot of these negative tropes and stereotypes that some people and especially the media like to associate with startup culture. And part of it, the reason why I came to Europe and why I really like researching the technology ecosystem here is because in some respects, we've avoided some of this kind of move fast and break things mentality that happened with a lot of the U.S. tech giants. And I really don't see this work culture as something that's acceptable but I also don't think people realize how much free labor is actually being done in the tech scene. But for a job interview, and even before you have the job, I think this is like especially appalling. So Nick Storonsky has written a new open letter kind of in response to some of these claims, kind of titled, we've made mistakes, but we're learning. And he says, quote, like everyone else at Revolut, I am constantly learning and growing with the company. I now know there is much more to running a successful business than simply hitting targets, end quote. He goes on to say that they're still on a journey and that they are looking for a head of people and culture to continue to grow. So they have over 800 employees, but 
no head of people and culture. It really kind of epitomizes some of the worst things we associate with tech and kind of new companies. But Andre, do you accept this kind of sorry, not sorry, non-apology from him? No, not really. I have to say this uh, post was published right before uh, we recorded this episode and I just uh, glanced over it. But to me, it doesn't look sincere and it doesn't actually address most of the issues that were brought to the light by Wired. Like people working weekends, there is nothing uh, said about that. It doesn't really say like, we're sorry. It said, yeah, like stuff happened, but it was a long time ago. Uh, Everything's going to be fine and uh, we are going to get better without actually outlining how that's going to happen. All Everything that's uh, addressed in this uh, post, in my opinion, is like just review processes and onboarding and offboarding procedures and so on and so forth. That, that's not the main thing, not, not for me at least. And for me, this is just not, uh, not really good enough. And I also have to mention, by the way, that I've just looked at uh, Glassdoor and noticed uh, that uh, there were 12 uh, five-star reviews for Revolut uh, published within the last two days from March 3 to March 5. And I really, I cannot help just but wonder uh, how genuine uh, these reviews are and uh, uh, where, uh, where they're actually coming from. Now we can go back to Revolut's problems because this was only the first one uh, last week. So uh, then on February 28th, uh, the Telegraph exposed the fact that Revolut had turned off its transaction monitoring system for three months uh, last year. Uh, the system was there to prevent uh, money laundering and uh, uh, transfers to sanctioned individuals and entities. So this didn't look great for sure, especially in connection with the earlier accusations uh, from the Lithuanian authorities that Revolut has a ties with the Kremlin. So the Telegraph, which is now probably the most hated publication inside Revolut, uncovered another thing after that. Uh, the Challenger Bank's CFO's chief financial officer, uh, Peter O'Higgins, uh, who joined uh, Revolut back in 2016, had left the company in January in a move that was not announced in any way. It was not publicized. I don't think either Revolut or uh, O'Higgins actually said anything about uh, him leaving. Altogether, this looked uh, pretty bad for Revolut. And then uh, on March 1st, uh, Staronsky published a blog post where he categorically denied uh, that any breaches had happened while the transaction monitoring system was down. And he explained that uh, the system in question was supposed to work in parallel uh, with the existing control mechanisms, but in fact led to too many false positives. So basically, too many transactions were flagged as uh, suspicious and uh, subsequently were blocked or frozen or delayed or something like that. So they had to take it down and make certain adjustments. Staronsky also said that the situation with the control system had nothing to do with O'Higgins stepping down from its position, which I generally believe. Also, I generally don't see many reasons not to believe Staronsky in this one. And I do think that if Revolut didn't comply with the financial laws and regulations, it would already be uncovered by the regulators themselves. But be it as it may, uh, Revolut has had a few really tough weeks, and uh, I'm really wondering how all these uh, stories will influence uh, its HR brand, first of all, because Wired mentioned that the company currently has more than 200 open positions in uh, different uh, roles in different offices, and it seems to me uh, that the number of applicants might drop in the wake of this news. What do you think, Natalie? Would you want to apply and work uh, uh, at Revolut? Well, I have kind of two different takes on this. 
First, I'm very interested to see who will eventually take up that new HR position as head of people and culture. But also there's Revolut offers a really interesting and kind of compelling opportunity for applicants. The fact that there are 3 million customers using Revolut right now, and it really gives applicants an inside of what it could take to be on kind of one of these rocket ship journeys of a very high powered tech startup. And it it might expose you to a lot of bad practices, but you also have really great learning experience. I personally wouldn't want to be involved with anything like that. But I think for new applicants, especially new to the workforce, it might be a very compelling opportunity. And I've noticed, especially in some of the geographies outside of big, kind of where the big tech hubs are in Greece and Southern Europe, especially, uh, opportunity to work at Revolut might be a really incredible one. So I I don't want to kind of give everyone a hard time for taking up a position there. But what I'm interested to know is like there were several reports last year that Revolut was meeting with SoftBank for some new investment. And earlier this month, we learned that SoftBank put $440 million into Oak North, another fintech that they were meeting with around the same time as they were meeting with Revolut. So kind of in light of these different allegations, what do you think, Andre, the impacts might have on potential further investment for the company? Do you think they'll take those different concerns into mind or what do you think there? I don't know. Honestly, I highly doubt that it will influence uh, any investment negotiations in a meaningful way. So if the company is working, if the company is profitable, if the numbers are right, I don't think that uh, an investor like SoftBank would be deterred too much uh, by this uh, kind of reports uh, and uh, uh, findings. So the, the the main thing here would probably be the control system, transaction control system uh, issues. But I do think that Probably Storonsky is telling the truth and uh, it wasn't as big as uh, the media made it uh, look like. So I would probably say that if there is a process uh, going behind the scene between uh, Soviet Bank and Revolut, I don't think it's going to hit a snag just because of this. What do you think? I mean, I, I think it's, it's too early to tell, really. But um, I think it is surprising that Oak North did announce that very big round from SoftBank. And you could think with the trajectory, the amount of customer signups, maybe because of the hiring practices, you could kind of see that Revolut might be in the path for some new investment. I'm not sure because they have been really keen to reach the US and go to Asia. So it seems in the timeline would be, be about right to raise right now, but we'll see. I'm really curious. Okay, how about this? Uh, 10 euros says that we are going to hear the news about Revolut's new funding round before the end of the first half of this year. If anybody listening to this wants to uh, take up the bet, uh, let us know. Uh, We can arrange it. I do hope it's not against any gambling laws uh, in the European Union. (laughs) But I mean, if if, if it is against uh, the laws, then we will just uh, do it without money. But we will definitely publish the results on tech.eu. Now, let's go back to the news. And uh, next up is esports. Natalie, you're an avid gamer, aren't you? That's why you wanted to talk about it. Well, I am definitely an avid gamer. I am not an esports fan. I don't totally understand 
fandom in this way, but it's something I am really fascinated with. So it's this story this week is partially inspired by the news that the Berlin-based esports company G2 Esports announced a Series A funding round that was just over 17 million US dollars. And this ranks the total raised by the company to almost $25 million. Why is this a significant thing and why should we care? And kind of why why did I want to talk about it this morning? Is First of all, this is a really big round for a Series A in Europe, and it also points to how big the potential market is for esports. Esports is something that I think in the past and probably was and definitely still is somewhat maligned as not being a real sport. And there's some confusion over kind of what actually entails with this. But now there's a growing awareness of just how significant esports are becoming. So if you want to get a picture of just how big this is, the new round that was put into G2 was led by a number of firms with backgrounds in kind of traditional investment. So hedge funds, oil and gas, real estate, private equity, a number of international investors too, especially from the U.S., G2 was founded by Carlos Rodriguez, who is known by his gamer tag, Ocelot. He's from Madrid. He's under 30 years old. And he became a professional League of Legends player at 16 years old. After a few years of professional gaming, he retired in 2014. As a player, he was known for, I'm quoting from a a promo piece for a talk he gave last year, but he was known for his fierce talk, explosive plays, and fashionable scarves that he wore during tournaments. After retirement, he founded Gamers2, the organization that would then become G2 in 2015. G2 has really big ambitions and already some big successes so far um, in their short history. So founder Carlos Rodriguez said this round of funding is to be used to put together an ownership group that would make G2 into a billion dollar company. So really huge ambitions here. And the funding also is ta- moves G2 from Spain very firmly to Berlin, which has really become the heart of the esports industry in Europe. Okay, what does G2 actually do? What does an esports company look like? Well, this company, for example, it runs a lot like a professional sports team, but also like a media company, covers league fees for its players, supports their training and development in different games, also produces content creation around their activities. So there's a big part of esports that's supported by sponsorship, just as in this more traditional athletic sports. And the content creation around the teams is also a big part of attracting this type of funding. The company works to turn their players into influencers and kind of really create a fandom around each of these players. G2 also plans to build a huge esports hub in Berlin as a place for fans to gather and host events, but also to develop a youth program to find and support the esports stars of tomorrow. This is really hotly anticipated and was announced last year. And now really they have the funding to, to make this into something really special. Europe always had a considerable strength in online gaming. And I really started following the esports scene here when I was living in Berlin and I had a chance connection with some executives at Riot Games. Riot is behind League of Legends, which is the biggest franchise in esports. And their European base is in Berlin. They started their European League of Legends Championship Series in 2013. And five years ago, they 
moved to Berlin from Cologne, where they were based previously. And now they have a huge studio there where the public can come to watch different tournaments live. Last year, the European League Championship Summer Finals was viewed by over 490,000 people that was held in Spain. But part of the reason why the market for esports is so large is because you're not really confined to a European market. It's truly a global one. So G2 themselves, they describe themselves as a world premier esports club representing some of the best competitive players around the globe. So they're not talking about themselves as a Spanish company or European company. It's really an international one. And last year, G2's League of Legends team qualified for the League of Legends World Championships in Korea. They didn't end up doing that well, but the championship reached a peak of over 200 million concurrent viewers during the finals. So this is just an absolutely huge thing. Beyond League of Legends in Europe, there are a number of professional teams that play on so many different games, including Counter-Strike, Quake, CS, Go, Fortnite, Hearthstone, and others. So there is a lot of potential here, but it's also a space where European entrepreneurs could be doing much more. Marty Strenswilk, the co-founder of Splice, which is another of one of these esports organizations, one of the earliest ones that's had a continual presence in the European championships, despite being based mostly in North America, has called for a lot more innovation in this space. He's encouraged entrepreneurs to continue to push this business to a different level and to really recognize that there is so much room to grow. I want to read a little piece from his blog that I think will resonate with, with our listeners. And I quote, if you look across the startup world, be it in tech, social, e-commerce, advertising, physical product disruption, or any of the dozens of other areas, when each sector starts to explode, you tend to see a number of startups tackling all the opportunity in that space, end quote. But this space in esports, he suggests not enough innovation is happening, not enough new companies are developing, and there is so much room for things to go further. And that's why I think the investment into G2 is a really important deal. And in this space, I think we're really on the cusp of something that's going to be really big in the future. So watch the space and think about esports as, as being a place where there's a lot of money to be made and also a, a very big market to reach. Do you actually watch any esports, Natalie? No. <laughs> No, and I really like I I love gaming and I just can't get really behind. I'm not a competitive person, but I definitely appreciate the incredible fandom there is for some of these players and some of these teams. It's it's really mind-boggling to me, but like it is a very real fandom. Yeah, I know. And I I don't really like most of the games that kind of made it as the staples of the esports uh, i don't I, i've never played league of legends uh, or i never played fortnite actually for that matter i do like hearthstone that's a that, that's a great one but i rarely watch anything also what you said at, at the beginning uh, that it's like not uh, everyone can agree whether it's a sport uh, or not i mean why does it matter call it a sport call it an entertainment call it whatever you want it, it, it if it has millions of people around the world watching it and uh, uh, willing to pay for merchandise or talk to the uh, uh, people who are participating in these uh, events it doesn't really it doesn't really matter that much whether it's a sport or not i guess i definitely agree with you but i also think it's part of this 
people have difficulty describing exactly what is going on here because in some aspects you see that they act very much like a professional sports team, but they're also doing this media component. They're also doing this community engagement component. They are also developing something that really hasn't existed before. And I think because they are active in so many different areas, it makes it hard to pin down what exactly this is. But that's also what makes it exciting because there are so many areas where new companies can come in and innovate. And I think that is really exciting. Yeah, it's a, it's really interesting. It's really interesting to watch. Now we can move on now towards our pre-recorded interview. This one was recorded by Robin Wouters and uh, he had a conversation with Goran Wagstrom, uh, the founder and CEO of ITCA from uh, Sweden, which sponsored our Mobile Sunday event in Barcelona right before the Mobile World Congress just a few days ago. Let's listen to this one and we are going to be back in a few minutes. Hey, this is uh, Robin Wouters for Tech.eu. And I'm on the phone with Joran Wackstrom from ITCA, which is a company that uh, supported our last Mobile Sunday event in Barcelona. Thank you so much for that. But also super interesting to get to know you because what you do, and I'm actually going to let you explain it in a minute, but basically you're building a much better version of Facebook. Safe, ad-free, privacy first. But I'll let you sort of introduce yourself for starters. Thank you, Robin. Uh, Joran Wackstrom, as you said, is my name. I'm CEO and founder of ITCA. We have developed ITCA for approximately three years now. The reason why we started ITCA is uh, because when we understood how the ad-based business models worked and the, the amount of information they collect about people and how it's used, we thought it has to be another model to protect people's privacy. Right. Well, we're going to dive in the, into a little bit more detail about that in a second. But um, your career has spanned uh, quite a number of uh, roles at companies like Ericsson for a long time. You ran while well, you were CEO of a company that was listed in the dot-com bubble back in the day. You were also involved in uh, sort of a telco infrastructure company after that. How did the startup bug catch up with you? Yeah, I've been always like, even when I was with Ericsson, I was working with the entrepreneurships and very much growing business. I've been always like doing these kind of projects. And uh, for me, it didn't really matter whether it was large organizations or, or a smaller one. But uh, the reason why we started ITCA was when I understood and we understood how the, the stalking or the surveillance capitalist works. And we were terrified to understand to how much information these companies were collecting about people and how it's used to manipulate us in different ways. So we thought it has to be an alternative available because we hadn't seen anything available at that time at all. Right. Well, tell me a little bit more about that, because nowadays there's a huge focus on surveillance uh, industry and sort of how Facebook and Google are mining our data for different reasons in different ways in different regions. You were very early in discovering sort of the extent and the scope of it. Uh, how did that happen in the first place? Me and my founding colleague, we were sitting discussing different, uh, I mean, we were talking about starting some new kind of IT-oriented uh, business, and we were discussing different things, and obviously Facebook and Google and, and the other similar companies. And uh, then we were starting to discuss their business model and what was the basis for it and so forth. So we started to dig deeper into it, how it worked. And when we understood the whole scope of it, we were terrified and, and thought this must be, I mean, this is not good for society or for us as individuals. So we have to make sure there are alternatives to this surveillance kind of, of business that they are doing. And um did you immediately think like we can turn this into a viable business or did that come later? 
Yeah, that time, I mean, uh, we were first, uh, I mean, focused on, uh, focusing on understanding how these business models worked. But then, of course, uh, when we understood the, how it worked and we thought uh, it was room, definitely room for an alternative based on another business model, then, of course, we discussed what could that be. But we saw some other companies, not in our field, but having other business models that, we, that worked. So we thought it should be possible here also. Great. Well, tell us more about ITCA. How does it work? What's the business model? Uh, who, are, who are you targeting? Uh, what's different from other social networks, etc.? Well, what makes it special? Yeah, first of all, the platform is developed based on privacy protection. So if you're an ITCA, you have your privacy protected. And that means not only that you're not searchable on the internet, but also that you can delete anything. You can de delete a chat function or a line. You can de delete a post or a comment, and you can delete your account, and the data is gone. Everything on ITCA is encrypted, um, uh, and, and certain parts even end-to-end -end encrypted. The functionality is like a combination of Facebook's newsfeed, all the services or functions you, you're used to in messaging platforms, and also to, uh, fully integrated cloud storage, like a Dropbox or a Google Drive or whatever, if you should compare with something. And all this is integrated into the platform. So if you, for instance, start a group on ITCA, that means you have newsfeed, you have chats, and you have an integrated cloud storage into that group. And you have also with all friends or colleagues that you have on IDCA, you have the same a newsfeed, a chat, and an integrated cloud storage with that person. Right. I was just going to ask, do you target individuals mostly, individual users or organizations or even corporate environments? I mean, the main target now is, is, is sort of groups. It could be families, uh, but it could also be, it's also, of course, large groups that are on other platforms where they shouldn't be because of the type of discussions that's going on in these groups. It could be religious groups, it could be political groups, it could be people discussing cancer treatments or whatever. But also enterprises, of course, and and of a different kind, and 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 uh, non-profit organizations is also an interesting target for us. And we have users from all these kind of uh, different groups on the platform now. Great. Now, Facebook wasn't the first social network. Uh, they were also not the last. I mean, there's a couple of companies that have tried to compete against them uh, based on features or based on, on more privacy, you no know, ads, etc. But of course, because of network effects inherently tied to social networks, Facebook has become the largest. So how do you, as a, as a young Swedish company, compete against a behemoth like that? I mean, first of all, I mean, we're not targeting to, to have like two and a half billion uh, users on, on IDCA. That's not the, the, the aim, even if it would be nice to have. But uh, first of all, the target groups for us now is, as I said, groups. So that means when you come on as a group, then you come with, with peers that you, are, you have something in common with to, to discuss and share. But, I mean, of course, people that go on our platform, they have realized the dangers of the stalking platforms or the surveillance platforms. So they, they are looking for something else. So if you want to be in an environment where you're protected, where you don't see any, any ads, uh, where people cannot reach you without having an agreement or a being a friend with you. No one can buy, buy access to anyone. So if you, if you want to get away from the, uh, these uh, addictive technologies that are around and focus on quality uh, communication with your friends and colleagues, then ITCA is the right platform to be on. Well, it's definitely a different message that you're sending. It's also a message that I think resonates um, more and more um, because as we've seen with sort of the implementation of GDPR here in Europe and the scandals that sort of Facebook and Google and other companies have been 
involved in when it comes to data and how well it's protected and what it's used for. Does that really help you, that wave of uh, sort of awareness and that wave of, uh, let's call it the tech clash against the, the big tech giants? Absolutely. I mean, the, in, the, in the last year, the awareness around privacy and the surveillance business model has erased dramatically. And you see many very well-known names being out in media and forming organizations to fight against the surveillance capitalism. And I mean, one that has been much out in the media is Roger McNamee. That was, I mean, an early investor in Facebook and also an advisor to Mark Zuckerberg and and, and, and Sheryl Sandberg. And he's been very, very aggressive in, in media and his communication. I noticed that. He's, he's also written a book. Have you read it yet? I haven't read that book. I'm reading another interesting book right now, which is called uh, The Age of, Sur- of Surveillance Capitalism with Susanna Sudhoff. It's really a Bible that describes how this economy works. And she even says, like, we have two uh, fears for humanity. That one is uh, the the environment or the climate change that that risks to kill the earth, and the other one is the surveillance capitalism that is uh, thre- threatens to to kill humanity. And that's pretty strong words. And that shows how. Se- and this book has got a fantastic reception on uh, and and very much uh, uh, talked about now. Great. Well, I'm going to put both of these books on my on my list to read for sure. Yeah. Um, but it's being this is a bit of an oddball question, maybe. But being based in Europe, uh, with the values that we sort of inherently have historically, especially in the Nordics where you're from, does that help you build the type of company that you want to build? Yeah. I mean, the, the I mean the fact that it's talked about so much more, and more and more people start to realize what's at stake here, that of course helps us, and, and we are one of the few that has a platform that uh, matches what these people are asking for great so how does that reflect in in user and growth number so far and now we have we have around uh, 25,000 users that has been uh, and we, we started to talk about idka the end of summer last year but we haven't done very much marketing at all so so it's still in a in an early stage and and the the platform is we call it in a, is in a beta stage because we haven't started uh, charging people for it yet because the uh, the business model you ask about that is a subscription model or a freemium subscription model. So you you can have a, a little presence on Inca that is free, but the, if you get more friends and use more storage, then you you pay. Right. So when do you think the platform will be sort of out of beta? When do you think you'll be ready to sort of start charging? Yeah, we, we're going to start charging businesses during this first half year. And then during the end of next or this year, we're probably going to start charging private users. Great. I'm also assuming because of the the nature of the of the company and the mission that you have, um, are you prepared to take outside investment to grow the business, or is that off the... absolutely? We are we are out now for now for a bigger capital round. We have, I mean, the company so far is financed by private people, so we do, we don't have any venture capital company in the as a, as a shareholder right now. But now we're going for a larger round so we plan to take in somewhere between five and ten million dollars to to be able to push push much more marketing and make uh, the brand awareness uh, much bigger do, do you think there's any markets uh, in the world that are more sort of receptive to this uh, type of platform or do you want to sort of get europe and the u.s first Yes, I mean now. I mean Europe, and, and uh, yeah, obviously in Europe there is a lot of attention to this, but also in the U- in the US. I think particularly after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the the awareness in the US has gone up dramatically, and 
so that's the prime market for us, but there are other markets as well. That are, I think Asia is a bit behind in this. I don't think they have understood the, the consequences of it, despite the, thing, the, the, the social ranking system in China. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty strange that people hasn't really understood the danger better. Yeah, it's a, I'm guessing it's sort of a different world out there with different yeah, platforms. Yeah. But Europe and the United States is definitely very much aware of this. Great. So aside from uh, from launching the sort of the paying version of uh, ITCA, what, what do you want to achieve in the coming 12 months, let's say? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously we want to have uh, user growth and uh, in all these categories and, and also getting, uh, I mean, more awareness on the market. I mean, the one problem we have is... Uh, because we don't use any of these Facebook marketing, you know, Google marketing tools, because uh, it's against our belief. So we don't have any like uh, Google AdWords pixels on our or, on our homepage or any Facebook pixels or anything like that. So we don't track any any marketing campaigns, for instance. So that we need to be very creative in in, in how we do marketing, and uh, which is different to any normal company because they use Facebook and Google and other chan- other similar channels to get out with their brand. Great. Well, challenges are, uh, are just opportunities put differently, right? So I'm looking forward yeah. to seeing how ITCA does that without you know, the, the modern social media tools that you're sort of up against. Um, also looking forward to see if that, res- that message that really resonates, as we've mentioned before, really results in, in huge, uh, user growth. So I'll, I'll be very keen on uh, staying updated. So, uh, but thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, let's uh, see what ITCA does in the next year or so. Yeah, thank you very much for having me here. Hello and welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu episode number 108. So we have just talked about uh, esports, about the issues of Revolut, about working culture and lots of other things. And we've listened to a really fascinating interview with, uh, with the CEO of IRCA. And now it is time to make some plans for the future starting from the events. So Natalie, what should we be looking forward to? Yeah, so this week I'm highlighting two different events. And first, if you're in Berlin, be sure to check out an event on March 13th, which is held at Blue Yard Capital, where they'll be discussing AI's impact on society, questioning utopia or dystopia. And they're bringing together really great panel of speakers from the Good Technology Collective, Lenovo and Melodrive. And if you listen to the podcast regularly, you'll know that this is a topic that I'm really interested in. So it's great that Blue Yard has put together this excellent panel and it's free to attend. And definitely if you're in Berlin on March 13th, check that out. Next, I wanted to share Insertech Insights Europe, which is taking place in London on March 19th and 20th. The event is Europe's largest event dedicated to Insertech, which is a rapidly growing industry across Europe. And you really notice that when you're analyzing the data and some of the funding rounds, just how much growth is in this area. So if it's something that you're interested in, do check that out. Andre, are you going to be attending any events coming up that we should know about? No, actually, I don't think I don't think I'm going anywhere until until the end of this month. I'm staying here, staying in Amsterdam, catching up with work mostly. Okay. How about yourself? Yeah, so this week I'm really excited to go to the launch of Project Heather, which is a new social impact stock exchange happening here in Edinburgh, which I find the concept is really interesting and I'm looking forward to checking that out. 
then later on this month, I'm joining Robin and a number of really incredible ecosystem builders and founders from across Europe for the Startup Europe Summit, which will be held in Cluj, Romania. So if you're looking for more things to do this month, do check out the events section of our website. And if you have a suggestion to add, let us know at the link in the show notes. Now, I'm looking at the headline of your recommendation uh, for this week in your notes, and it makes it makes me feel some existential uh, sort of dread. Even though this is my favorite part of the podcast, I'm not really sure what this one is going to be about. So, Natalie, why would you talk about a blockchain phone? This piece was selected especially for you, Andre. I knew it. But before we get to that, first, I wanted, if your interest was piqued at all by the earlier piece on esports, and if you don't know anything about it, there is a really great documentary on Netflix called Seven Days Out about the West Coast League of Legends Championship in California. By watching it, you get a picture of just how serious esports is, and it gives you an idea. And one of the players they profile, I'll spoiler alert, his mother was brutally murdered during the tournament, but he kept playing through it. That's kind of how big this thing is. For my recommendations and back to blockchain, last month we had the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, and a lot of the attention was on Samsung and Huawei's folding phones, which to be honest, look really cool, and I can't wait to get one. But there was something else that was showcased there by a number of different providers. And these are blockchain phones and phones that mine cryptocurrency. Uh. And I thought, Andre, you would really appreciate that, especially because the thought behind blockchain phones, like the HTC Exodus, I think is a generally good idea and maybe a noble one, especially because they have this goal of realizing a more decentralized internet. Don't move too fast. And I'm not sure if blockchain-enabled phones are going to be the next big thing for 2019. So this week, I wanted to suggest this article from the MIT Technology Review, which is titled, What the Hell is a Blockchain Phone and Do I Need One? And it kind of goes into some of the details about these offerings. And the conclusion it comes to is, no, you don't need a blockchain phone, not yet anyway, but in the future, you might want to consider it. In the show notes, I have a few links to some other takes on the blockchain phones that were released, and you can make an educated decision about it. But generally, most people were saying, you know what, it's not ready. We've heard a lot of hype in the past about blockchain that was not realized. So don't make tracks to buy one anytime soon. I know, sounds quite horrible to me. But uh, you also said that you would uh, you would want to get a foldable phone. Uh, what would you do with it? Well, you know, I think it would be great for the times that you, you don't want to have a phone and a tablet and kind of go more minimal with your setup. I think that might be a great option. It'd be I'd have to see it and my hold it in my hands first, but it does seem like that's the direction things are going in. Yeah, I think it's good fun, even though I don't really have a tablet, so I don't really have any scenarios in which I would really want to use that big of a screen. But anyway, so would you like to buy one of the first ones? What is it, $1,800, if I'm not mistaken? <laughs> yeah, I definitely don't have a budget for that anyway, but I generally am not an early adopter when it comes to new technologies like this, because they tend to get a lot better over time and I don't necessarily need to be a guinea pig to test it out. I did buy the first generation iPad though and I really enjoyed that, but I don't think I would for this. Definitely 
a little bit above my pay grade. I think first-generation iPad was actually... If you compare, for example, to first-generation iPhone and first-generation foldable phone, first-generation iPad was much more polished and much more ready to use back in the day. But yeah, I would also I would also be really interested in uh, getting one of those phones and uh, trying to use them day to day. But I'm also I'm also really 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 doubtful about uh, how durable these uh, screens are going to be and how many fold and fold cycles they can survive. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, I guess we're about to see more of those anyway, and I do hope that they will become just a little bit cheaper because paying more than 1500 for a phone is just not something I, I want to do. I mean, even if I had the money, I'm not sure I would want to use it this way. Now, going for the next recommendation, the one from me, it's actually also about uh, tech, partly about hardware, partly about software. I probably mentioned uh, before that I'm really uh, fascinated with old technology artifacts in general, uh, both hardware and software and everything in between. And this is why today's recommendation from me is a story on Bloomberg uh, that is called uh, America's Cities Are Running on Software from the 80s. I guess we all kind of knew it, but this article gives a really good example, like a series of examples of really old and clumsy and not fit for purpose uh, software that powers some of the very important functions of the city authorities across the US. And what's even more important, uh, the story explains uh, nicely about why it is so hard to update uh, these uh, software and uh, why it is even harder uh, for uh, the authorities to migrate uh, to the cloud. It has to do with regulation. I can spoil this one. And uh, it's not just cities, of course. Since I do like the topic in general, I did some quick Googling around and glanced over a bunch of other stories. So I wanted to bring you a few other examples of old and even antique, I would say, uh, tech that's still running around us. So here comes uh, the Department of National Defense in the US still uses floppy disks. Remember those? Uh, also, many hospitals, like very many hospitals across the world, still use fax machines and pagers extensively. Lots of doctors still have their pagers with them uh, so that hospitals uh, can contact them in case of emergency. Also, pagers, that, that, that one I didn't know at all. Pagers are very popular amongst bird watchers. So there is actually a special uh, bird alert service that you have to subscribe to and you have to pay for, and then you will be sent notifications when rare birds are are spotted in your area. This is amazing. This is fascinating. I really want to dig deeper into this and write a story about it for Tag.eu. Now, uh, also, some of the world's biggest banks and financial institutions uh, run software written in COBOL uh, for mainframes. So this is also decades-old technology that's still powering really serious parts of our lives. Uh, another thing, uh, the Pentagon's contract software, which handles more than $1 trillion in the payments and contracts and all that, dates back to the 1950s. Imagine this, 70 years ago, uh, it, was, uh, it was written, and here we go, it's still being used today. And upgrading it apparently uh, would cost so much money that uh, nobody uh, wants to do this at the moment. Another scary one, most of the technology controlling America's nuclear arsenal dates back to the 1960s. So this is both scary and fascinating, uh, for me at least. And if you also like these kind of stories, uh, check out this one on Bloomberg. I will put a link uh, in the show notes. It's, it's really, really interesting. I'm not surprised by this at all, because when I was working at the State Department in D.C. Uh, back in 2017, they, I think they were still running Windows Vista 
And I've heard that sometimes these legacy systems can be more secure, especially if they're not connected or easily connected to the web. But I know that in the U.S., being very proficient in some of these legacy systems means you'll never be out of a job because they really do proliferate in so many different, especially public institutions. Yeah. But speaking of uh, Microsoft and support, uh, there was also a piece about uh, the navies of both the UK and the US, which paid huge money uh, to Microsoft uh, to support Windows XP for an extra year after it was supposed to be uh, like uh, after the support was supposed to be stopped just because they did not up- upgrade uh, their software in time and they uh, really needed uh, all the updates all the security updates uh, coming to the operating system for uh, for one more year it's really interesting how how these things happen but as i said we we always kind of knew it and we probably all saw it when we come to some governmental institutions we can see all the black screens with uh, either green or white letters, depending on how old uh, the stuff is, but it's still it's still it's still kind of scary. And of course, uh, COBOL uh, programmers, uh, I don't think they're gonna uh, be out of work uh, within the next uh, few decades for sure. These things are really long lived. So I guess this is it for us today. It's time to wrap it up. Uh, thanks a lot for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't miss our new episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify or SoundCloud. Just look for tech.eu podcast and you will find us. Please leave us a review on iTunes. This will help others find uh, our podcast and will mean a lot for ourselves. Tell everyone you know about the podcast for whom it will be relevant, of course, and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU and on Facebook. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Always a pleasure to discuss this stuff with you. Thanks for having me, Andre. Have a great week. Enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.